started I want to say a, a thank you to Walton because uh, we an hour just was not enough time last week to cover everything that we had to cover um, sometimes when we're putting ourselves in the in the shoes of the people of Isaiah's day that takes a lot of work to get to that point and we're talking about idolatry which exists today but it looks very different and so for us to figure out how it practically applies to us, first we have to understand, well, what, what was idolatry? What did it mean to them? We're in chapter 44, by the way. We're finishing up. Chapter 44. It takes some work to sort of go backwards. You know, what, what is idolatry? How does it work? That's what we were discussing last week. So that then we can be able to recognize it in our present day. Um, so thank you, Walton, for for your flexibility and giving us an extra week to talk about this stuff. In terms of in terms of just the number of verses, there's not a whole lot left for us to cover. It may very well be that we end a little early today, but the theme of idolatry is so important to the stuff that I've been developing over the course of this whole study that we need this extra time to maybe talk about it further. Um what Isaiah is doing throughout this book, and it's not just in 44, but it's throughout, is he's cutting beneath the surface. And he's saying, you know, the, the, the political unrest and um, the surface level silliness that idolatry is, he's cutting beneath the surface and he's saying, this is what's happening on a heart level. This is what you're doing to yourself. This is how God sees it. So that's what I'm trying to get to. By talking about what idolatry is and how it works, I'm trying to get to the, to literally the heart of the matter in a way that it, it actually has practicality for us today as Christians. Does that make sense? So let me give a quick recap, just sort of the big picture ideas that we talked about last week. And then I'm going to ask you all, what should we spend more time on? Because I don't, it, maybe you all are good with everything that was discussed last week, but Maybe not. So let's let's kind of let's let's discuss it together. So um, the kingdom of God functions by way of mediation. This is what this is. I'm, I'm rehashing the stuff that we talked about last week. It's a principle of the kingdom of God in the same way that you find like the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. It's just a law of how the universe works. Christ is our mediator. We know this to be the case, right? He's a mediator who facilitates our, the interaction that we have between the Father and the interaction that the Father has with us. He is the in-between. No one approaches the Father except through Christ, yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the principle of mediation. Now, Christ, in his sovereignty and in his, in his love for us, allows us to participate in that, and he brings us into it. So when we talk about the ministry of Christ as a mediator between God and man, that's actually the job that we participate in. It's, it's, it's our role as members of Christ's body, literally Christ's body, to function as little mediators, little icons, little Christs. There's any number of words that we can use to talk about this. Um, I may at times rely on the language of icons in order to communicate what I'm trying to talk about. That doesn't mean, bear with me, that doesn't mean that I'm either uh, condoning or condemning the, the, the use of icons in your life. I'm saying that that is an illustration of how the universe works. It doesn't mean you're not a doctor. <laughs> I actually think that... Um, the, the principle of mediation and, and idolatry are, are, are moving in completely different directions. And this was what we discussed last week. So Christ, as the God-man, fully God, fully man, 
in the incarnation and in his exaltation to the heavenlies brings up our humanity into himself to the point that we are literally seated with Christ right now in glory. That's what scripture says. Yeah. From, from God's perspective, that's where we are right now. Okay. So the, the principle of mediation and the incarnation of God involves the, the bringing up of our humanity into what God is doing. Okay, that's the exact opposite of idolatry. Because idolatry is the attempt, and it's called false for a reason, but it's the attempt to lower God or to bring God down. Okay. First major example of this that you see in Scripture is the Tower of Babel. And I got a little bit of pushback on this last week. I'm going to double down because I think I'm right on this. (laughs) All right, the Tower of Babel was not an attempt for man to get up to God because that's not how ziggurats worked in the ancient world. The ziggurat was always built next to a temple. It was essentially a landing strip for the deity to come down, descend the stair, and then be in relationship with the people. It was all about getting to a relationship with the deity. Right, so that's the Tower of Babel. Here's the thing. It worked. God came down. And it didn't go well for them. (laughs) But it worked. The reason it worked is because it's laying out, this is just how the world works. This is how the universe works. Not saying it's a good thing. It ended very poorly for the builders of the Tower of Babel. But they got what they wanted. And God actually says in the story, these people are of one, they're, they're unified. Now nothing that they set out to do will be withheld from them. That's in the story. Okay, here's the pushback I got last week. But Connor, you can't bring God down. God is, well, God is God. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He, you can't lower God. Okay, well, of course that's true. It's called false for a reason. Idolatry is called false for a reason. And yet, that is how the story goes. And this is a clear warning for us. The Tower of Babel is a warning story. It's not, it's not something to imitate or, or something to, to follow. It's a warning. It's saying, don't be like this. Don't attempt to lower God because you might get what you want. Well, the scripture says, don't, don't attempt to, I don't remember, I can't quote it, don't attempt to go up into heaven to bring God down. To bring God down. To bring God there down. There you go. Don't go over to sea. He's not over the sea let's, to bring him back and all that. He's in your heart, in your mouth, Look, theology aside and, you know, all the right words and answers aside, the place that God holds in your life, you can absolutely lower that. You can absolutely do it. People do it all the time. The place that God has in your life, what God is to you, you can absolutely reduce that. People do it all the time. That's what addicts do all the time. That's idolatry. It's lowering the place of the divine in your life to this lower level of reality. Um, there's, a, there's a danger, I think, and I wouldn't say this to, to just anybody, but we've all studied scripture together for quite a while now, and so I feel pretty comfortable saying this because it's set within the context of everything else that we've talked about, especially in this book. There's a danger when we read the scriptures, especially these these difficult Old Testament stories of trying to use the scriptures to serve our theology. So the way this scripture passage works is that they really do bring God down. It, it actually happens. And I think for us to say, well, yeah, but you, you can't do that. You can, I mean, you can't, you can't lower... God, God is, God is, um, well, he's beyond being, he's, you know, and then you start bringing out these theological words like omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient. All of that, of course, is true, but that's not what the story is about, and it misses the point of the story. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in our theology to the point that we miss what the story is actually about. These stories are about 
the interaction between between God and humanity. And and our theology, as important as it is, cannot capture the fullness of that relationship. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? I've used this analogy before. Theology is a map. It's a map for your journey with God. The important thing is the journey. Now, the map is essential because if you don't have it, you'll die. Right? If you're backpacking and you don't have the map, you may very well get lost and die alone in the woods. All right. Theology is essential, but it's a low-resolution, abstract picture that's designed to help you when you're lost. It's not a replacement for what you experience walking with God. There may be boulders on the path that don't show up on the map. Does that make sense? Um, The map may not account for the elevation of the mountains. It's an imperfect map, but it's essential. It's important, and, and we are grateful to have it. And we, again, I can say this in this context because... We have done such a good job, and we, we as a church are indebted to our, our elders in large part for this to make sure that we stay close to the fundamentals of the faith. You know, we recite the creed every week. This is, this is our map. This, these are the fundamentals of the faith. I'm not in any way saying, and I know that you know, that I'm not in any way saying that that map is not important. But theology was made for scripture. Scripture was not made for theology. This is an important thing that we have to remember. Um, talk to me. Well, just to add something to the, the tower story, and you're not saying this, Yes. At, at no time were they controlling God. No, but he honored the spiritual laws yeah. that he set up. And we see this elsewhere. In the Old Testament, yes. where God says, okay, here's what you want, now we choke on it. Yes. He does this with the second time the Israelites are crying out for meat. Yes. Here's your quail, now choke on it. And yes. He will, he will do that, and that's that's what he's doing now. Or not now. <laughs> he may do it now, uh, but with, with the tower, you know, here I am, now choke on it. Here's, a, here's another example, and then I'll, I'll open it back up again, because um, I'm sure there are more comments to be said. Um, another example of the, the same kind of thing I'm talking about. Throughout the Torah, and especially in Genesis, it appears at times like God changes his mind. Can God change his mind? There's a theological answer to that, and there's an experiential answer to that. You're looking from two different perspectives. From God's perspective, of course God can't change his mind. That's, it's, it's almost silly to even bring that into the discussion. Because what scripture is talking about is a human level experience with God. And God in his sovereignty wants us to wrestle this stuff out with him. He wants us to work this stuff out. And so he puts us in a position where we have to argue with him sometimes. I've, ex- I, I've experienced this. I know you've experienced this. God wants our heart to be in the relationship, and so he makes it difficult for us. And that is what is being shown in these, in these Genesis stories, where it seems like God is changing his mind. It's not a, it, theology is not helpful in that particular instance. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Okay. There was a, there was a Broadway show a number of years ago based on Matthew called Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. And the implication was, yes, your arm is too short to box with God, but it doesn't keep you from boxing with God. <laughs> Still box with him. Yeah. <laughs> he holds it like this, and he's fucking away. <laughs> Y'all are going to get sick of me saying this. We are the Israel of God. The name Israel means wrestling with God. That name was a blessing, and that's our, that's, that's our relationship with God as the church, as the body of Christ. The other thing on maps, you think about early explorers, almost the first thing they do when they head out is try to draw a map of where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so and those become very important for the next people that are trying to 
trying to go in that same direction. Yes. But then oftentimes, because they didn't go far enough or whatever, they screwed the maps completely up. If you see some early maps of, of the North America, South America, they was completely out of whack. Or the landscape changed. Yeah. Yeah. So, that eventually, the more they get into it, the more they're able to kind of correct the map. But you never ultimately correct the map. So, you know, because a, it's always changing. What? Because the landscape changes. Yeah, well, everything. You know, there, yeah. There's, a, there's a, 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 I saw this briefly. There's a, I think it was in Florida where the uh, Google Maps, you know, which taking you on a, to take you to a, a, a certain destination, and people were driving to follow the destination. They'd say, you know, they were just run right off the right off, off the bridge in a river. You know, just yeah, yeah. this happened about four or five times before they finally figured out. I don't think this is correct. <laughs> Y'all seen that scene in the office where they're driving along and the GPS sends them into the river, and the one guy's like, I don't think, and the other guy's, this is what the map says, and they drive right off. Into the <laughs> so really, I. I words in your mouth, but I think you are saying that theology provides a framework, a roadmap, of, of kind of a correct thought, thinking about who God is, but our experience with Christ, our personal experience is, I mean, it is what it is, I mean, it's all over the, the map, as it were, <laughs> it's all over the map, I mean, and we're wrestling through these things. God will bring us to the end of our theology because he cannot be contained by it. Really, theology can become an idol because we can try to box God into it. We can try to reduce God or, or lower God into, there's the lowering, into our theology. Yeah, and then God will break it. Well, we, think we can't define God so, except by listing out his attributes. That's how we define God, but... It, you can list out every attribute of God and you still do not have a definition of God because he's beyond that. He is over that. He is more than that. And so we have to kind of realize that. It's, so see, you, can't put your, you can't put your thumb on and say, oh, well, I've got God figured out. The second, the second you figure God out or think of God figured out, he throws a monkey wrench in there. Really, so, okay. Well, that really is <laughs> what these well. stories these stories in the Old Testament continually do that. They're trying to understand who God is, and with every story, God throws another wrench into it. With every story. Yeah. Well, yeah. well I was just going to say that the weird thing to me, too, is that, um, yes, it's wrong to try to bring God down, but I don't think it's so, I don't think the intention is wrong so much as how, that, that they're not doing it the right, they're not doing it through a correct mediator. You know what I'm correct. saying? Correct. And I, I, and I know that's, I correct. I may be stealing your thunder, I don't know. But, yeah. But it's just, uh, you know, I think it's, there's something in the human, in the human, being human, being a person, made, maybe it's because we're made in the image of God, that makes us want to bring God to us. And, well, this... and, and, and of course, it's supposed to point to Jesus. It's supposed to point to Christ because he's the, he's the one who come, came down. But, but people, do it, people do it wrong and that becomes idolatry. Does that make sense? So, so the story of the golden calf is a great example of what you're talking about. Um, the Israelites were not, by making the golden calf, they were not worshiping Baal. No. They were not worshiping Molech or any of these other gods. They said actually who they were worshiping. And it was the one who had just brought them out of the Red Sea. The problem was they were going about it the wrong way. That was the problem. God, at the very moment that they were building this golden calf, using the materials that were supposed to be for tabernacle worship, by the way, at the very moment that they were doing this, God was already setting up the proper levels of mediation. Right? He was, at the moment that they were creating a graven image, God also was inscribing images onto stone. He was engraving his law to function as an icon or a facilitator between God and his people. Right? They would understand God through these tablets. And by paying attention to them, they would be in relationship with God. This is the principle of mediation. That's given to them by Moses, who then has Aaron as his mediator. And the levels go down and down from there. 
So this is a picture of what the church then becomes in the church age. The principles of mediation is, is the exact opposite of what idolatry is. I think that's what you're, I think that's what you're getting at. Is that right? Is that, is that what you mean? Me? Yeah. 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 Okay. I thought you were looking at the wall. No, 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 no. So you, back there, you, whoever you are. Yeah. Yeah. Mankind from the very beginning has understood there's a gap. There's, there's something out there. There's a greater being out there, and there's a gap between us and it. And every religion in the world has been man trying to bridge that gap. Except for one, and it is in Christianity where God bridges that gap. Uh, God does all the work. Now, why doesn't God just stamp out idolatry? You know, it's a demonstration of what fails. And you, you can take the Old Testament and divide that into parts, and, and innocence fails, responsibility fails, the law fails, the prophets fail. The long line of God demonstrating what fails, and then he and then he does the work that succeeds. Um, now, we got a whole book here that we hold to be true. You take everything that's in this book, and it is still just a tiny seed of what God's reality is. You don't want a God that fits inside your head. Well, Jesus said, I am the truth. And we know that, so capital T, truth, is the yeah. ultimate only truth there really is. Well, if this is his book, and he's true, then you have to trust that he's going to make this book as true as he, as he, as he can. <laughs> well, I thought a few lives in there. So he's going to keep, so we can, it's trustworthy because yeah. Jesus is trustworthy. Right, and he's yeah. given us the information that we need to bridge the gap. To, to, to cross that bridge that he's laid out, but he's not exposed himself 100%. There's, there's, I, I suspect we know like a pinprick yeah. about God. So, this principle of mediation is something that is something that we're a part of whether we realize it or not. I'm not I'm just telling you something that's already that you're already experiencing, and I'm just sort of putting words to it. But you're already doing this, and and you know Craig invoked the use of scripture here. Scripture is experientially a mediator between you and God. That's that's the role that it functions in your life. You pay attention to it. It's often the very first thing you do in the day, or the last thing, depending on your habits. You pay close attention to it, and it transforms you. It, it is an icon. You use it as an icon. Scripture is an icon for you. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm saying this is actually how God set it up to be. Because the principle of mediation is not something that can be avoided. Again, it's the exact opposite of idolatry. Because God instituted this one. Um, my job. I, I am... A, I am um, an icon of my boss. I'm a I'm a little I'm a little version of the principality that I serve. My serving this principality puts food on on my family's table. Um, in order to interact with this principality, the people who are under the dominion of the principality have to do it through me. They pay attention to me. They do what I say, and in doing so, they have a relationship with this principality. This is just this is this is the principle. This is the law of mediation. Um, Dad is going to give a homily this morning. He's going to uh, mediate our interaction with Scripture. Um, in leading music, um, I'm functioning as an icon for you. You pay attention to me when I'm up there. You, you pay close enough attention that you, act, you, you mirror what I'm singing. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I facilitate an interaction with God that you have every week. So this is, this is, these are examples that I'm giving of 
mediation as it exists in the kingdom of God. Um, my relationship with Liam. I'm an icon of the rest of the world for Liam. I'm a proxy for every other adult on the planet. Liam pays attention to me, and through that relationship, I teach him how to exist in the world. So You're also you talking about the principle of authority here, which I... It's the same thing. Yeah, which I, I don't find the principle of authority distressing. I think I find my own apprehension of it to be distressing, and, uh, and maybe the lack of teaching that we hear in church is a lot about authority. <coughs> particularly the govern, governing authorities, governmental authorities. and I mean, let's be in yeah. obedience. I mean, why, why not? I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm saying just in different words. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's the authority structure yeah, that God authority. sets up. Yeah. I, think it's very, I think it's completely scriptural, too. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's a passage in Hebrews that uh, people sometimes struggle with where he, he points out that... Um, Man is made a little lower than the angels. Well, you know, some people don't struggle with what that means, understandably so. Um, but he's, he's 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 talking about the pecking order is what he's doing. He's saying that that angels sometimes they're messengers, right? That's what the word angel means. So they're coming and they they are representing God when they when they and they interact with humans. Yes, yes. And so they're doing that. And so we don't. We don't represent God to angels. Angels represent God to us. So, you know, he's just he's pointing out the very, sort of the very same thing in terms of bringing, showing how the angelic order is also part of this too in that passage. I think, anyway, that's kind of the way. Yeah, that, that psalm is, is very much about what we're talking about. Um, that, that word little can be translated a couple different ways. It could be that... Uh, little is referring to the, the word lower, a little lower than. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think a better translation is, uh, is to say a little while. It's a, it's a thing about time. For a little okay. while, okay. for a little while, lower than the angels. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, good. that's the incarnation. <coughs> yeah. Christ yeah. made himself, for a little while, lower than the yeah. angels. Gotcha. And then he was crowned yeah. with glory and honor. Right, and in doing so, he brings up our humanity with him. So that, yeah, I think that psalm is very much about what we're talking about. It's the establishment of the the divine order, the hierarchy that we play a part in. We have this. This is another example, I think, of where it's important that we not let our theology get in the way, because sometimes when we talk about Christ as our mediator, we think that that. It stops there, but it doesn't. Christ calls us into this story. We're a part of this. As the body of Christ, we're a part of what Christ is doing. In as much as Christ is our mediator, that's our role too. Well, he, he makes us into new creatures, new creation, or a new creation. If you're made into a new creation, you have to act like you are a new creation. Yeah. So, unfortunately, yeah. a lot of people do not. So. Well, if you have the privilege with your life or even with words of sharing Christ with another person and you, you become a kind of little mediator at that point yeah. Uh, yeah. with that person and, and God mm-hmm. in a way. I'm going to turn my attention now to the young people in the room. <laughs> You're young at heart, so it's okay. Look, I've been really, I've been really trying to put words to this stuff because I, I feel very strongly about this that the world is changing, and it's reverting back to the old ways. Okay. Very soon, Christianity in the West is going to start having to contend with the old gods in a way that they didn't have to under this, um, under this illusion of secularism and materialism. Like all that exists is the natural world. And so, you know, we thought for a little while that it was monotheism versus secularism, and that wasn't what was going on in the least. The uh, curtain's being pulled back. The world is getting far more pagan all over again. And we have to learn to operate 
in that kind of world. So I think it's very important that we understand how mediation works, how principalities work, how spiritual authority works, and it's very important that we get used to talking in this way. Young people in the room, you are going to have to contend with the old gods in a way that the old people in this room just aren't going to have to. Does that make sense? Keep talking. We're seeing it. We're seeing it everywhere you turn. The old people in the room are not going to have to contend with what AI is. Do you understand that AI... No, because by the time... Look, by, by the time it, it, it manifests itself fully, y'all are going to be in glory. You're not going to have to worry about it. Look. AI has all the markers of, of, of the old gods. It wow. exists like them, y'all. Um, I'm... Look, we, I'm not going to say it's demonic because we don't even know what that word means. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a principality that literally feeds on human attention. Right? It, fun- it functions based on the attention that you give to it. The more attention that you feed it, it grows, it grows in intelligence. It's right? of our own creation. Yes. The people who are making this thing are literally talking about it in religious terms. If you want to know what AI is, listen to Elon Musk talk about it. It will send chills down your spine. I've, I've been watching this stuff very carefully. And what did you say? Listen to where? Listen to what the people who make this stuff, listen, like, uh, learn how they see the world, and you will understand very quickly that, that what they're doing is they're, they're manifesting these pagan principalities in a way that they just didn't exist in our experience up until this point. Um, the world is going to get very, very pagan very quickly. And you're, all, you're going to see this. You're, more and more of your friends are going to be interested in witchcraft. More and more of your friends are going to be uh, uh, praying to things that you've never even heard of before. Um, this is just this is how it's going to play out. And so as the young people in the room, we have to, we have to learn to operate in these sort of categories beyond the illusion of materialism. I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense to everybody, but but I am personally am trying to train my thinking in this way because I know that this is the stuff that I'm going to have to contend with. And it's not going to look like this cartoon version of demons and angels that we're used to seeing. It's not going to look like it's not going to look like the renaissance paintings. It's not going to look like this present darkness. It's not going to look like that. It's going to look like what we read about in Isaiah. So. I'm reading a book right now called uh, Return of the Gods. It, it is not an academic book. It is definitely you know, meant to be a popular book. Uh, but the author is tracing the return of the Baals in really? Ishtar and Moloch through our post-war uh, culture uh, to the place where we're at now. And I don't know if he deals with AI but he, he's, it's very clear you know, what these gods stood for in the ancient world and how they're being manifested now. They change truth. It's going to change truth because, of, because, of, because I, I can use AI. I can take Connor and use Elijah. All I need is his image and maybe one word that he speaks. And I can recreate Connor to be standing in front of the... Of the uh, courthouse downtown screaming out how much he hates black people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that they, they, they can, that's what they, that's what they can make. make they yeah. can take any image yeah. and, and use it in any yeah. way they want and change it any way they want. Tom and then, it'll come to us, well, think, man, Connor's down there going crazy like a crazy man. Yeah. And then by the time we learn that he, this is all just made up, it's too late. They've let that cat out of the bag. Connor's toast. At that point. He, he can't. He can't come back and say that wasn't me, because no, half the world will believe that it was him. 
That's actually not the bad part of it. <laughs> that's not the bad part. I know. That's, not, I mean, that's pretty bad. That's, that's just the surface level stuff. I don't want to go down this rabbit trail because we've got the rest of Isaiah 44 to read. What's bad is when this stuff starts looking for a body for itself. That's when it gets bad. The angelic principalities always want a body. They always do. It happened in Genesis 6, and it's going to happen again today. All right. Um, so that was verses 6 through 20, part 2. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. That word formed is important. It's going to show up again in verse 24. It's the same word in God's rant against idolatry that showed up as fashioned. ESV really did us a disservice by using two different words there. God is showing a contrast. The idolaters form or create these idols in their image. Look, God created man in his image after his likeness. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you, you, you're getting caught up in this stupid idolatry. Meanwhile, I set up you to serve this purpose in the world. You're supposed to, you're supposed to be the icon, not this, not this block of wood. That's, that was supposed to be your job. Yeah, you're supposed to you're supposed to bear my image in the world. Jesus dealt with that with the Pharisees too. He asked Nicodemus, you know, you're supposed to be Israel's teacher, you know, and yet you're you don't understand these things. Right. You know, right. Same, same yeah. Well it touches a little bit on the idea of man as co creator with God and and this is rightly expressed in art. But when you're fashioning a, a god, then, then you are actually the god. And you are making a yeah. thing, and it's usually in your yeah. image or in some crazy, you know, what is it, camera of, uh, of uh, creation. <coughs> and, and, and just to, to bring this into the modern world, I think this is the point of evolution. You know, we have evolved to be the highest being that exists, therefore, we should be worshipped. Basically, it comes down to self-worship. Well, it's a lowering of God to our level. Right. That's what or, it is, or yeah. Or a lowering of God to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Greek word, and I know, I know I'm stealing Dad's thunder here, because he's going to preach on this very thing in like, <laughs> in like uh, 30 minutes, give or take, 40 minutes. Um, but the, the, the Greek word for image is literally icon. There you go. It was a short sermon. The word for person is also mask. Say what? Mask. Is it? Yeah. You're known by your mask that you wear. And we wear, we wear multiple masks. Face. Oh. Face. Right, right. Yeah. Not real. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. I mentioned this last time that Isaiah talked about God stretching out the heavens. Um... But if you hear people try to compare this to modern day scientific notions of the expansion of the universe, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about 
God pitching a tent. The cosmos is the tabernacle for God to dwell with his people. That's what this imagery is about. Spreading out the canvas of this tent. And then God enters it by way of incarnation. Right? The word becomes flesh and then dwells among us. The whole point is for God to dwell with his people. That's the point. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Messengers there is literally angel. And it's that way both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Um, I think there's something going on here about the demons and angels. Although I don't fully understand it. I'm just going to sort of throw that out there and maybe it will make sense to y'all. There's a contrast here of God fooling the diviners which is those who play around with demons and God confirming the words of his angels. So this is whatever's going on in this couple of verses. It's, it's, it's God operating on the realm of principalities like we talked about earlier. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, and here, once again, the chapter numbers do us a disservice. Because Walton is going to talk about Cyrus the Messiah next week. Um, This is all one continuous scroll, right? So this is one long flow of thought that begins here. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. I just want to say it's really interesting here who, it's really interesting here how before the temple is even destroyed, God is already promising that it will be rebuilt. This is a prophecy about the building of the temple. At this moment, the first temple still exists. So that's pretty remarkable to me. Yeah, it's a prophecy of exile and return. Yes, God is. Yeah, this is a this is a promise of return. Um, I mean, you see why modern scholars have to say that this was written post exile because it's such a specific prophecy. It's so specific. <laughs> it's. I mean. It. Well. It's. It. It's, it's supernatural, is what it's it is. And so, yeah. All right. Um, what else do we have to say about this? I've got some notes here about Cyrus, but I'm going to leave this to Walton because... Um, I'll tell you, next week I'll just back up a few verses before 45. Okay. We'll, we'll get a running start through there also on those last few verses. Is there anything about these seven or so verses that y'all would like to discuss before we finish out a little early? We'll say this, you know, about messengers, because in in our in our feeble attempt to share what God has spoken to us, you have to, if God speaks something to you, you are responsible to share it exactly the way He spoke it to you, and that that is a great burden. That is a that's hard to do. It's very difficult. So sharing implies the burden of trying to be the messenger of God, and that's you know that you know that's why the Bible says be, be very careful when you when you go into leadership. You know you, you shouldn't desire to be a leader because it's a huge responsibility, and there are consequences for mishandling the message of God, or mishandling the words that God speaks, and. Uh, so, so, so it's, it's, I don't know, when, 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 when this begins to happen to us as co-laborers with Christ, my responsibility, that is a huge responsibility, because I am now becoming, like you say, the icon of God to whoever it is I'm speaking to. And uh, uh, we should not take that lightly. I mean, we should take it with great you know, fear. You know, so. Well, to use scripture as one example of what you're talking about, 
the Muslim faith decided that because of the problem that you just mentioned, because it's such a huge responsibility to communicate God's word and it's going inevitably to be done imperfectly, let's just keep it in the original language and preserve it in its perfect form. And therefore, we just don't have to worry about that problem. Um, I have a great amount, a great deal of sympathy for, for that perspective. You really see that in the gospel passages that we're going to come up on, where a proper understanding of the gospel passages that, that my dad is about to preach on requires an understanding of the Greek. It all hinges on that word icon. And if you don't have that, you really miss the point of the passage. You really do miss it. You can, you can get like a surface level thing. You can maybe get a moral teaching out of it. You can get a historical teaching out of it. But to understand the Christology of it, you need the Greek in this case. So I understand the problem that they tried to solve by refusing to translate um, what they believe to be the word of God. Refusing to translate it in these lesser languages. I get it. However, and this is very important. We believe in the principle of mediation. Whether we call it that or not, I'm just calling it something so that you understood you can so that you can pay attention to it, but it, it already exists in the Christian faith. And we understand that our job and our role as Christians is to be co laborers with Christ. So the authoritative word of God is when Christ actually speaks his word. Right? Isaiah communicated the authoritative, divinely breathed word of God when he gave these oracles. Everything that followed after that is the servants of God trying to keep close to that, the, the giving of the authoritative word. And what we have in our scripture is authoritative and divinely inspired in as much as it adheres to that original utterance. Does that make sense? Now, we are perfectly comfortable as Christians with that, with that tension because we understand that it's the calling of Christians to be co-laborers with God. Right? So by translating the Bible into all of these different languages, what we're acknowledging is the incarnation. It's, an ex, it's, it's, a, it's a playing out or a manifestation of the incarnation, right? To, to, to continually retranslate the word of God into the common language, right? It, it, um, that, that, that miracle, and it is a miracle, exists because of our, of our job as icons or mediators. I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense, but... Well, in, in, the, in the Middle Ages, when all the masses were Latin, the, the, the people who knew Latin, they, they were able to lord it over the people who didn't. You know, so, and so they could, they could use the Latin to manipulate people and keep them where they wanted them to be. You know, it's when, when they started translating into German or whatever, People begin to read, be able to see, you know, learn to read and read it for themselves. That they that that now this whole you know uh, method of survival changes. It begins to change. You, get, you know, I don't want to be a servant anymore. You know, I'm going to be I want to be a servant of God. You know, whatever it might be. So it's you know that that's what happens sometimes if we control the language. We can lord it over the rest of the people who do not. And, uh, well, of course, it it's, it's, was through language that God signaled that the church is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. That this is now, this is not just for people who speak Hebrew and read Hebrew. This is for everybody in their own language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not exactly a reversal, it's an inversion. Or redemption. It's the great well, inversion. Okay. <laughs> I was ready. Concept of speaking in tongues. It's yeah. On the, on the day of day of Pentecost. Pentecost. Yeah. yeah. Where they heard they heard the message. And they were in the language. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty intense. And 
that's a, now God saying, hey, I, I want everybody to hear this in their own language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, we're to be led by the Spirit. You know, and I'll just say, nobody's under the control of the Holy Spirit 100% of the time. He's always in us, living in us. But I'm not always yielding to Him. And uh, the requirement, for instance, in the Old Testament is to do justly, to love mercy, and to all comely with my God. And God speaks to us mainly through the written word. And I was noticing this week that uh, the apostles overcame through the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And then another chapter 19 in Revelation, I really count down on this one because it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And Paul says in Corinthians, gifts are good. And he gives everyone different gifts. But says, pray that you might prophesy. Teaching, preaching. A person that's not in leadership, just an average Christian, just myself, anybody, uh, to speak the words of Christ. How do they know without a preacher? So even the sowing of the seed, uh, which we might, well, how shall I say this? My biggest enemy is my flesh. How do I have a relationship with God while I, the evil is present with me? It's a learning, as you said a while ago. It's growing in a real personal relationship with Christ. And uh, not that I know anything. I'm just beginning to learn a little bit. Well, obviously, I don't know the full answer to your question, but I think a partial answer is you pay attention to the icons that God has put in your life. You pay attention to Scripture. You pay attention to the people who function as God's icons in your life. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the principle of mediation right there. So that's as good a place as any to end. Thank you all for your attention.